part, it's a good thing to be born again, isn't it? To be born of the Spirit, to walk in newness of life. If you would take your Bibles, go to the book of Acts. Just have it open there in the book of Acts. Today's message is a little bit different than usual, not necessarily going through just one passage of Scripture, but looking at an overview of the book of Acts in hopes of accomplishing a couple things this morning. First off, the US overview of Acts will help us to set the backdrop to the book of Ephesians. We're going to start into the book of Ephesians next, uh, next Sunday, and so this will kind of give us an idea of what's going on at that time in the first century church when then Paul later on writes the book of Ephesians. The book of Acts covers about a 30-year period from the ascension of Christ, you see that in Acts chapter 1, all the way to right before the death of the apostle Paul. And so within that time is also when the book of Ephesians would have been written and the church in Ephesus would have been operating at this time that the book of Acts was written. Second thing that I want to try to accomplish today is to whet your appetite for the book of Ephesians. As we go through this overview of the book of Acts, we're going to see some things that, that coincide with what we will see in Ephesians. And I'll point those out to you along the way, just to give us kind of a, a primer to what uh, we're going to see in Ephesians. Question for you this morning, since it is New Year's, how many of you can say that you truly love change? Not a, oh, Ron thought about it. He thought about it, then his hand went down. You say you look for it, you want it, you embrace it, you love it. Not many people. There is one person in this church that absolutely loves change, and she is actually not in here this morning. I think she's in the nursery, and that is Anita, our church secretary. She rearranges her office almost once a month. And in fact, when I walked in this morning, it was different than when I saw it on Friday. It's, it's, it's incredible. There are five types of people when it comes to change. I, I read this, I think it was one of the, in one of the classes I took. Five types of people when it comes to change. There are, number one, the innovators. They absolutely love change. They are daring. They are risky. That's 3% of the population. And I think we proved that this morning. The second group of people are the early adopters. They know a good thing when they see it, and then they go for it. That's 16% of people. I'm sorry, 13% of people. Then you have the third group, which is the early majority or the deliberate. Once they think about it, once they evaluate it, once they watch it, then they'll go for it. That's 34% of people. And then you have the late majority. This is category number four, the skeptics. They approach things with extreme caution. They need a lot of proof before they finally buy into things. That's 34% of people. And then the last category, the laggards. They don't just drag their feet. They dig in their heels, right? They, 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 if they change, if they change, it will be a long time before they feel happy about it. And statistics say that that's 16% of people. Would you say that's pretty accurate? Kind of the, the description of different people. It's hard. It's hard to do something new, isn't it? How many of you will write 2022 on everything that you do for the next three months? It's hard to change. It's hard to do something new. Change is challenging. It's risky. It's, it's a little bit scary because we're, we're, we're going off into the unknown in a way. Well, we see some of that today in this overview of the book of Acts. Acts is a transitional book in the Bible. We go from the Gospels, and then we have Acts, and then we jump into these epistles of Paul mainly and some of the other apostles as well. Everywhere you look in the book of Acts, you see something new. 
See, something that, that hadn't happened before, something that's different. And though the break between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we would say, is between Malachi and Matthew, really in the Gospels, they're still operating under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. So the transition from the Old Testament, Old Covenant, to the New Testament, New Covenant, is actually the book of Acts not between Malachi and Matthew. So you have a lot of this change happening in, in the book of Acts, and people are coming to these things, and, and, and a lot of them, I don't know if I can, I, I can handle this. Well, I'll show you a couple of those this morning. First of all, this morning we see a new power, a new power, the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts portrays for us, especially early on, and then throughout the book of Acts, a new power. Now, when I say a new power, and it's the Holy Spirit that we're talking about, it's not that the Holy Spirit is new. The Holy Spirit is eternal. He is God. But the way in which he indwells and the way he works from the point of Acts on is new. There's a change in the way that God operates with the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 7, in the upper room with the disciples right before his death, Jesus tells them, it is good for me that I leave you. I'm sorry, it's good for you that I leave. Can you imagine how that hit the disciples? What? We've been with you for three years. You're all we know. You're our teacher. You're our leader. And you're saying it's good for us if you leave? Jesus says, yes. It's good for you that I leave. And he goes and he gives them the promise again, as he has before. He says, when I go, another helper like me will come and will help you. We see this in John chapter 14, we see it in John 15, and we see it in John 16. This promise of the one who is to come, the Holy Spirit who would come down in power. Now, the disciples were probably familiar with the Old Testament stories, the Old Testament examples of the Holy Spirit coming in power. They knew of his work in the Old Testament. But this time, this time when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll work in a way that no one has experienced before. Let me show you a couple ways that about uh, a couple things about the Holy Spirit. Number one, He's coming permanently. We see that in the book of John, chapter number fourteen, verse sixteen. The Holy Spirit is coming permanently. Jesus said, "I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper that He may abide with you forever." See, that's different from what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on someone, accomplish a task through them, and then he would leave them. This indwelling of the Spirit in the book of Acts is brand new. There was no permanent indwelling of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but now Jesus says, when he comes, he will come permanently. He will dwell with you and be with you and empower you permanently. Jesus also says he's coming purposefully. That's in John 16, an extended section there from about verses 5 down through 14. Jesus is not just sending the Holy Spirit willy-nilly. You know, he'll just do whatever he comes to do, and you'll find out eventually. No, he's sending him to accomplish his will. John 16, 13 tells us that he will, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will guide us into the truth. That's one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is coming, so that he guides us to, he illuminates the truth for us. John 16, 14 says that the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. We talked about this a little bit in our Wednesday night study this past week, that, that the Holy Spirit illuminates Christ so that our attention is drawn to Christ and we want to be more like him. And that's one of the ways that he sanctifies us. 
John 15, 26, we see it in the name. He says, I'm sending you another helper or another comforter. The Holy Spirit is coming to help and to comfort. He's coming for a reason. And then in John 16, 8, he tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? The work of the Holy Spirit, convicting of sin, bringing you to repentance and faith in Christ. So he's coming permanently, he's coming purposefully, and then number three, he's coming powerfully. We see this in the book of Acts, if you're there, Acts chapter one, verse number eight. The Holy Spirit is coming powerfully. Jesus says there some of the last words he speaks on earth. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is coming to empower you to do the same thing. The Greek word there for power is the the Greek word dunamos, and we get our English word dynamite from it. It's dynamic, dynamite power. It's explosive power. You realize the Spirit empowers us more than we know and a whole lot more than we utilize. That's true. The Holy Spirit empowers us a whole lot more than we utilize. The disciples and every future believer, that includes us, are are empowered with the power of God himself. That's new. That was different for them. And it changed everything for the apostles. Changed everything for the, the disciples. We'll see in our study of the book of Ephesians starting next week that the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Ephesians at least 10 different times. Paul draws our attention back to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. So a new power, we see that in the book of Acts being the Holy Spirit, which leads to, secondly, a new boldness. A new boldness. If you look at the end of the gospel accounts where where Jesus has died and before he has risen from the dead, the disciples were, were running scared. Even while Jesus was with them, the disciples were were a little unsure, a little uneasy. Missteps and poor word choices and doubting and little faith seems to sum up the time of the disciples in the Gospels, doesn't it? But from Acts 2 on, everything changes. From Acts 2 forward, everything about the disciples changes. I think there's two things that change them. Number one is what we just talked about, the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Coming on them in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost gives them power. I think the second thing that changed them is the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Once they knew that Christ was risen from the dead and he appeared to them, there was nothing holding them back. It validated, the resurrection of Christ validated everything that Christ said. Everything that he had said, everything that he had done, when he was able, through this power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, to rise from the dead, it validated everything. And and, and Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul sums up the importance of the resurrection. He says this, he basically says, if it didn't happen, give up. If it did happen, go forward. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That if that didn't happen, if you don't believe in the resurrection, go on your merry way, do whatever you want to, who cares, we shouldn't be here. But if the resurrection is true, Jesus is everything he claimed to be, and he's someone to lift up and exalt. Before Acts 2, we see 12 men here and the disciples that they weren't even sure if Christ was even the one. Sometimes they doubted, is he really the one? After Acts 2? 
we see 12 men who are willing to die for Christ. And they all end up dying for Christ. They have a boldness with the gospel that, that really hadn't been seen before. I'll show you a couple places here. We're in the early part of Acts 2. In Acts 2, verses 14 to 39, Peter stands up, and in front of this, this, this group of people gathered from all over the world, he stands up and he boldly proclaims the name of Christ. The ones whom you crucified, God has risen up. Acts 3, verses 11 to 26, Peter preaches again at the temple after they had healed the lame man at the gate. And he gets this opportunity to preach kind of on the steps of the temple there. And he preaches Christ again. In Acts 4, they get in trouble for preaching Christ. So now Peter and John and the apostles have the opportunity in the early part of Acts 4, they get to proclaim the truth while they're being questioned by the Sanhedrin. Then later on, Acts 4, verses 13 to 22, they continue to preach Christ even when those same people said, don't do it. And they say, I'm sorry, we can't listen to you. We ought to obey God rather than men. In Acts 4, verses 23 to 31, they pray for boldness. And it says that the Holy Spirit fills them with boldness that they may speak the word of God. And then Acts 5, verses 17 to 32, they're imprisoned for preaching the gospel. God miraculously gets them out of prison. And you know what they do? They don't go cower in the corner and say, guess we're not trying that again. That didn't work out too well. No, they go right back to doing what put them in prison in the first place. That's power. That's boldness. It tells us later on in the book of Acts that these men and the apostle Paul and others were the ones who turn the world upside down. In Ephesians 6.19, Paul, in prison, asks the Ephesians to pray for him. And it's interesting, he doesn't ask them to pray for him that he would get out of prison. He asks them to pray for him that he would have boldness for Christ while he was in prison. He's basically saying, pray that God would help me to redeem the time I have with the people that I am with at this point. Give me boldness now. We see that in the, in the apostles, that, that, that bold new energy, that urgency in the book of Acts, and that should in some way be contagious for us. Maybe a little, a little uh, kick in the pants, as it were, to start off the new year and say, I want to be bold like the apostles were. So a new power, a new boldness, we see also in the book of Acts, a new mission, and that is the church, a new mission the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that he will build his church. Remember that? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But at that point in Matthew 16, it was still a promise. It was still something that was happening out there. In Acts 2, though, we see that church, that new mission starting to take shape. It's starting to come together. Acts 2.41 Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, Then those who, this is after Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, Peter preaches this message. Verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls added to them. Who is them? Who's this them that's being put together? Well, verse 47 tells us that. 
They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Them is the church. God is starting to put together this this organism, this group, this body, that Ephesians 2 comes along later and tells us it's the body of whom? It's the body of Christ, his beloved. And it tells us that God is starting to form this body that each day, verse 47 says, God was adding to the church, saving people and adding them to the church. How are you added to the church? An application form, uh, a baptism. How are you added to Christ's church? The answer is by grace, through faith in Christ. You realize that you can be at church all your life and never be added to the church or in the church. The church is not this building. The church is the people of God who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are not part of the church. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And today you can be, as these people were here, you can be added to the church. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the family of God. And you can take an outsider, someone who doesn't belong, someone who did not even want him, and he can work in their heart and bring them into his family so that we are heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters of Christ and brothers and sisters of each other. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. The church is growing. Many of those, chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we go from chapter 2, about 3,000, chapter five about, or chapter 4, about 5,000. The church is growing. It's starting to take shape. And the new mission of the apostles was clear. The apostles were called to build the church. Christ was building the church through these men. And I think that's what Jesus was hinting at. Remember much earlier in the, in, when he first met the disciples? He called them and he told them that I will make you fishers of men. And they're starting to realize what that means, that by the Holy Spirit, they are bringing people into the kingdom of Christ. They are building his church. Ephesians 2 verse 20 refers to Jesus as the cornerstone of the church, but it actually calls the apostles, and we'll work through this when we get to Ephesians 2, it actually calls the apostles the foundation of the church. What they believed, what they taught, what they wrote for us becomes the building blocks for the rest of the church throughout time. That was the foundation that was being laid here in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, this new mission begins. And guess what? The new mission that started in the book of Acts hasn't changed since the book of Acts. It's the same mission we have today. Build the church. There's a lot of change in Acts, but nothing has changed since Acts in the plan of God for this era. The mission of God is the work of the church, and the work of the church is the mission of God. To reach the lost, to strengthen the found. And I think I can say this, although it might be somewhat startling. If you are not involved with the church, you are not involved with God's work on earth. I think that's accurate. 
If you are not involved with the work of the church, you are not involved with God's work on earth because that is how he is working through, working in this world at this point through the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 25, and we'll get there. It tells us that Christ gave himself. He died for his church. He loved his church so much that he gave himself for it. He died for it. He loves it. He's building it. Wouldn't we want to get along with that as well? Get in on that as well. Get in on the building of Christ's church. Really, if you look through the rest of the book of Acts, you see this story developing. The apostles are preaching. They have this message about Christ. They're working in various areas. You have all of Paul's missionary journeys and things that happened to him in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. What is all that? It's the beginning. It's the expansion and the growth of the, the church. It's all that's, that's the whole book of Acts from here on out. Number four, a new apostle, a new apostle. Now, in Acts, as, you, as we saw in chapter two and chapter four, many people are being added to the church. Many people are being called into ministry. In fact, in chapter one, we see a new apostle chosen to replace Judas. Remember that? Judas had done what he did, and they said, we need to have another one step in and replace him. End of chapter one, Matthias is, is noted as a faithful man, and they say he is a fit replacement for for Judas. But even more notably, because that's not the one I'm talking about here today, even more notably later on is a new apostle that gets introduced. In fact, 21 of 28 chapters in the book of Acts talk of this man's exploits. He was the apostle who shouldn't have been. There was nothing in Paul, Saul at the time, that even remotely, faintly whispered, future apostle. Nothing, nothing said that. Nothing about his life said he, he's probably the one. All the people that were being persecuted, they were thinking, ah, that's just for now, but later on he's gonna be a great apostle and a writer of scripture. And do all. Nobody was thinking that. That shows you the power of God to get a hold of somebody. Saul was a mess. He was a train wreck. He was a persecutor of the church. And yet he becomes the greatest apostle of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We see here that this new apostle in Acts, the apostle Paul, is a great example of God's grace. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. Paul writing here to Timothy. This is kind of his story, his, his mini bio. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You see the immense grace of God there? In verse 16, he says, one of the reasons that God saved me 
is that I would be a pattern so that all those who come after me can look at me and say basically this, if God can save Saul, God can save anyone. If God can save Saul, God can save anyone. He says, I am a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. If God can do that work in that man, he can do that work in you. Completely changing his life. Paul is an example of God's grace. Paul's also an example of God's timing. You know, sometimes we question that in life, don't we? The timing of God. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he calls himself the late apostle. One born out of due time. He's late to the party, in essence. He's not an early adopter of change. But all the other apostles are doing their ministry, and then God brings this one other, other man later on. Yet in Acts chapter 9, when God got a hold of Saul on the road to Damascus, there wasn't any looking back. From that point forward, he was full on. We also see that Paul is a communicator of God's goodness. From the Holy Spirit through Paul, we get 13 of the books of the New Testament, including the book of Ephesians, which we'll be looking at. And you look at Ephesians, and it's got this, especially in the first three chapters, it's got this deep and, and weighty doctrine. But then it also has this practical instruction for life and godliness. As Paul has understood the deep grace of God, and now he's applying that to his life, he's sharing with us what the Holy Spirit has for us. That was tough. In the book of Acts, that new apostle Paul, that was tough for people. Not everyone warmed up to Paul immediately. Would you? They, they weren't initially sure of the change in Paul, if it was real or not. It was new to them that someone who was once trying to kill them is now preaching about what he once tried to destroy. That's what it says in Galatians 1.23. Where people were, they were shocked that the one who was trying to kill us is now preaching about what he did want to destroy. And a lot of people didn't understand that at first. But change was in the air in the book of Acts. And we see one last main way this morning, and that is this, a new audience. A new audience. The Gentiles. John 1 verse 11 says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that was true. Jesus came to his own. He came to the Jewish people and his own did not receive him. You know, most Jews despised Jesus, except, of course, for when he could heal them. Most Jews mocked Jesus, except, of course, when he gave them free food. But most Jewish people rejected Jesus. And therefore, we see in Acts this adjustment in the audience of the gospel. Before Acts, it was primarily Jewish. In Acts and after Acts, it is primarily Gentile. Romans 1.16 says that great, great verse that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And so we see this adjustment. That, that's good news for us, isn't it? That the gospel is for all. The gospel saves not just the Jewish person, but also the Gentile. The key moment for that transition, if you turn there, we're not going to read too many of the passages, but Acts 10 and 11. Acts chapter 10 and 11, that's the key moment for seeing this transition happening in the audience of 
the gospel. Acts 10 and 11, we see this incredible story about when Peter meets this man, Cornelius. Cornelius is a man who has a knowledge of God, but does not know Christ yet. He has a knowledge of who God is, but does not have a relationship with Christ. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius sends some men to find Peter and to ask Peter to come to his house, to come back to Cornelius and his household. Meanwhile, in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16, Peter has a vision. He's praying, and he has this vision, and in this vision, a sheet of unclean animals descends and appears before him. And God says to Peter, kill and eat. Kill and eat. And Peter says, I can't. I won't. I can't do that. It's against the Jewish law. I can't touch those unclean animals. I can't eat those unclean animals. God says, yes, you can, and you will. And I don't understand what he's getting at. It wasn't about the animals. It wasn't about the animals on the sheet. It was about Cornelius' men who were about to knock on Peter's door. And God says, Peter, through this unique vision, God is warming Peter up to the idea of these men coming and asking him to go to Cornelius' house. Say, okay, great story. Why is it important? See, Cornelius and his household were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. And they come, Peter comes to Cornelius' house, and he preaches to Cornelius and his household. And it says in Acts 10, verses 34 to 43, Peter preaches. And then right there, while he's still speaking, it says, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. What does that mean? If the Holy Spirit comes on someone, it means that they are saved. And so here's Peter preaching to this group of Gentiles. And now not only were they, were they saved by the grace of God, it says they received the Holy Spirit. It says in, later on, verse 45, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Verse 47, the Jewish people, they said, can we forbid water? These should not be baptized. Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So there's a great transition happening here where whereas the Jewish people were able to come to faith in Christ, so the Gentiles are able to come to faith in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, you see this brand new audience for the gospel begins. The gospel is opened up to the Gentiles. That's a radical change. That's something that the, the Jewish people would have to try to adjust to. But then later on, Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 8, Paul says he is called to preach among the Gentiles. In Romans, Paul's call, Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 13 to 28, Paul's missionary journeys are largely to the Gentiles. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem council debates whether or not the Gentiles have to keep Jewish laws and customs in order to be saved. Basically, can they just be saved by the grace of by faith? you know, by grace through faith in Christ, or they have to, have to also take on Jewish law? The answer is, no, it's faith in Christ. You don't also have to become Jewish in order to be saved. Ephesians 2, which we'll look at, verses 11 to 18, says that the barrier between the Jews and Gentiles has been broken down through Christ, through faith in Christ. In Romans 11, verses 11 to 17, Paul says that the Gentiles are being grafted into the people of God. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
that's good news because I happen to be a Gentile. And we should be glad that the gospel of Jesus Christ has come, that God has opened the doors to those beyond the Jews. The outsiders, us, all of us, can now come in to the family of God. That's a beautiful thing. See, under this new covenant, under this change that's happening here in the book of Acts, we see that the barrier between us and others is broken down in Christ. That the curtain between us and God is, has been broken down. Remember that great illustration that happened at Christ's death? That when he breathed his last, it said the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The barrier had, between us and God has been broken down. And the Bible says, whosoever will may come to Christ. Whosoever will may come. And whoever comes to Christ... Whoever is in Christ, according to what we read earlier, is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. That's a wonderful thing. We're going to close our service tonight, or today, excuse me, by celebrating that very fact. I asked the men to come forward.